With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My guest this week is Conservative MP for Bolton West and member of the COVID Recovery Group, Chris Green. Chris, welcome to the show. Hello, Nathan. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, the pandemic has seen this government massively shift the Conservative Party towards favouring a level of much higher state spending and higher taxation. Is the Conservative Party still Conservative? Well, it's, uh, there are all sorts of different ways we can deal with the uh, pandemic. Broadly speaking, I think there's a huge national consensus uh, how we've approached it, certainly at the beginning as well, where we weren't uh, in a position to really fully understand what risks we faced. Um, and most people would accept that if we're furloughing a great many workers, uh, that costs a great deal of money. So these are by and large things that are temporary for the duration of the pandemic. Obviously, there are questions over uh, the, the debt that we're uh, amassing and ad- certain additional spending um, uh, spendings that we have increased that may carry on to some extent after the pandemic. But broadly speaking, we've gone in this direction uh, for a unique circumstance. Uh, and I don't think that reflects the broader uh, direction of travel with the party. And a lot of the reasoning behind this move towards a bigger state is designed to retain a number of those seats that the Conservative Party won in 2019 in those red wall seats that were so traditionally held by the Labour Party. Do you think this is a a measure by the government that can be sustained, that should be sustained? Or do you think that now the pandemic is starting to go into its closing stages, the state should start to withdraw from uh, wider aspects of society? Well, I think these are two very distinct areas. On the one hand, you've got the pandemic spending with the uh, principally furlough, but you've got the track and trace, you've got all these tests that people are taking on a regular basis. Those costs are coming to an end or ought to be coming to an end very soon, as opposed to the broader levelling up agenda, which there's no real crossover between the two. So fundamentally, a key part of levelling up is infrastructure. Infrastructure is expensive, and we have yet to see uh, the government Uh, really get going with that agenda. There have been certain things with the High Streets Fund and the Town Centre Funds, um, but that's um, relatively small in in terms of what will be needed for a comprehensive levelling up agenda. And I think uh, the government, especially with the appointment of Michael Gove recently, who's going to be responsible for levelling up, we ought to see more substance of what that's going to be about. Well, you've just mentioned there about levelling up and the Prime Minister really wants to focus that policy in areas like yours in Bolton and across primarily those areas of the North that uh, Boris Johnson won in 2019. And you've mentioned there a couple of aspects of uh, infrastructure and investment, but more tangibly, what is levelling up about? Is it just more than a political slogan? What what can voters expect to see from this agenda? Well, it's uh, as yet unclearly defined by the uh, the government or certainly there are a number of 
interpretations. Well, that's one of the things I think Michael Gove and his team are going to set out to more clearly establish that understanding. But for me, fundamentally, um, we do have a centralised society, we do have a centralised state, and local government uh, has to too much look to Westminster for decisions to be made and look too much to uh, Westminster for funding to be given. For me, a fundamental aspect of levelling up is the ability of local communities to act on their own behalf and make sure we have to have the, the funding that goes with it because if we've been artificially suppressed or haven't been uh, invested in enough over the years, then obviously our tax take locally isn't high enough, but it's fundamentally local decision-making for the best interests of that local community. Now, that does require a great uh, deal of infrastructure, I think, whether it's the railways or roads, but it also means uh, that we need a, a better public transport infrastructure as well, because we need all people to be able to get to work uh, and to school and everything else more easily. So one of the key questions of that would be uh, Northern Power Rail or HS2. Well, for me, it's clear that the Northern Rail infrastructure is far more important than this train track to London. And within this, you, you've just spoken about really empowering uh, local government. And one way the Prime Minister wants to do this is by increasing the levels of local devolution in, in a way similar to that in Greater Manchester, where we're both based. Do you think local devolution around creating these combined authorities and city regions is the right way to address those regional imbalances? Or do you think more power should be given to existing local government structures? I far prefer uh, supporting existing local government structures. We understand by and large what local government does and we understand the responsibilities of national government. It's having these intermediate uh, bodies, whether it's the mayoral position in Greater Manchester, whether it's the Welsh and Scottish governments, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of doubt about where their responsibilities lie and who else has um, those powers, those actual responsibilities. So there's a lot of confusion and the devolution agenda isn't localism as many people would understand it because significant amounts of power being taken from the local authority level up and away from people uh, to the uh, devolved local government. And then you, you look at certain aspects of accountability in London. You have the London Assembly who challenges and scrutinizes the mayor of London. We have no such body in Greater Manchester. So Andy Burnham is the mayor, but how does he get held to account? Um, it's very difficult to see how that is done at the moment. And that needs to change if we want to push forward with this agenda. We had Andy Burnham on the show about two months ago, and he met, was talking about exactly exactly this and the levels of accountability and scrutiny. And he believes that having a body like the Greater London Assembly elected to hold the position of mayor and the various responsibilities of the mayor to account, he felt that was an unnecessary level of bureaucracy and uh, too, too much of a barrier towards actually making decisions and implementing policy. What, what do you say to that? I agree. Um, we don't want more politicians. Um, I would say about the mayoral position itself. It's another politician, another layer of politics, which I think is unwelcome. And I think in Greater Manchester, uh, if there was a referendum, we wouldn't support it. We would say, yeah, we want localism. We want power come to the local authorities. Uh, one of the key areas that power had been devolved, and it was unique, and it could have been a leading area for Greater Manchester with 
health and social care devolution. Now, nationally, especially through the coronavirus crisis, and certainly when we're looking at support for um, the social care sector, Greater Manchester could have been that area leading the country on a new model. Now, Andy Byrne didn't want those powers in devolution, which is a little interesting because he was the former Secretary of State for Health. And you would think this is a great area for the 200, sorry, 2.8 million people in Greater Manchester to have the mayor with these devolved responsibilities leading the way. But he didn't want that responsibility. Obviously, we've had a great deal of concern over policing. The chief of police uh, left under a cloud. He kind of took sick leave. Um, and we now have a, a new chief of police. At what point, whether it's health, uh, law and order, anything else, do we have a clear body, a clear mechanism to challenge the mayor? It's interesting, you didn't actually say what he thought would be a good idea, but perhaps we could have a system almost like a select committee system uh, that we have in Westminster. So it could be those existing members of parliament in Westminster. You have a forum uh, a number of times every year where those MPs could challenge face-to-face -face the mayor. So those questions, hopefully from those members of parliament, would reflect local concern, local interest, and it'd be an opportunity where the public could observe directly the challenging questions being answered or not answered. And with, with that there, you, you mentioned the ideas about uh, health and social care and something that's been causing a lot of tension within the Conservative Party at the moment and indeed uh, in the public is this rise of the national insurance contribution to pay for social care. Why, why did you vote in favour of this national insurance increase? Well, social care is in a very difficult uh, position. Uh, reform and change is needed and more resources are needed uh, in the very near future. And when you're given an option, it's a binary thing, vote for, vote against. I'm not very comfortable generally with abstaining. Uh, this was better than nothing. There was no alternative uh, to this. So I voted in favour. But I'm very concerned that this money initially is going into the National Health Service, ostensibly to help us get over the COVID crisis and the huge backlog. But then will the National Health Service release that money afterwards to go into social care? Uh, we don't know how it's going to pan out, but it's hard to see that it will. So the question, I think, has been pushed back in that sense for uh, a few years, and it's going to have to be revisited. Is it fair to those people who voted for the Conservatives in 2019, those particularly in those red wall seats who lent the Conservatives their vote, is it fair to them to break that core manifesto pledge not to raise taxes? Well, if we hadn't had the uh, coronavirus and associated lockdown, which has disrupted our society so much, uh, then I think we should be held to our manifesto commitments. But I think most people, most fair-minded people would say, if you have a disaster of uh, this nature, uh, that you can't really be held to manifesto commitments in that way. But the underlying principle and direction of travel for Conservatives ought to be low taxation, where government steps in only to do what is necessary for the government to do and leave people with as much of their own money uh, and the ability to run their own lives in their own way. That has to be as, um, uh, as high up the agenda as possible. So these were very uncomfortable things to do. I don't think uh, the questions of national insurance uh, and those things have resolved the problem. So again, I, th I think we need to uh, get the economy back to how it was pre-pandemic and advance from that, restore the finances, 
but then seek to reduce taxes uh, within reason. With the current direction of travel within the, the party at the moment and within the government, the, Boris Johnson is pursuing a, a bigger state at the moment. He, it's looking like he's going to lower the threshold for tuition fee repayment as well. There's questions over the amount of houses being built at the moment. And uh, currently the tax burden is now at its highest point since the 1960s. Why should young people in particular support the Conservative Party? Well, one of the points you just made about um, uh, how the government would phrase ambitions for house building. Well, young people growing up, uh, whether they uh, leave school, go straight into work or university and then work, uh, many people want that uh, start a home, that flat perhaps. Well, if we don't build houses, then people won't have a suitable place to live. So I think getting the balance right is uh, always going to be difficult, always going to be challenging. Uh, but I, I think one, this is one of those areas, rather than having a centralised target of 300,000 houses, this is one of those areas that could be devolved. So the mayors, all the leaders of local authorities could make the decision about how many houses ought to be built in your local community. And I think that's a far healthier way in terms of democracy because people get very antagonized and very agitated about house building and building being in the wrong places and the wrong types of houses. If you give far more direct uh, authority to local authorities, it's far closer to the people and they could and should have more influence rather than a formula being given from central government, which is then imposed upon local communities. Okay, I'd like to move on a little to ask you about Brexit. You have a very prominent Eurosceptic in Parliament. But since uh, the Brexit deals were implemented, signed and ratified, there have been a number of issues with the implementation of the withdrawal agreement and the Brexit deal. Is Brexit turning out how you thought it would? By and large, yes. Um, when you have a close relationship with um, another body, in this case, uh, the 27 or so other nation states of Europe, plus uh, the European Commission, it's always going to be difficult to break away from that relationship. So there are always going to be problems. That's inevitable. Mm. You can't expect it to be plain sailing. And I think people, the vast majority of people who voted to leave the European Union would have anticipated some problems to some extent. But by and large, the fears that we had beforehand have not manifest. And I think the clearest uh, uh, problem that was we were being told would happen is that there'll be colossal, absolutely massive queues uh, in Calais, in Dover, that everything would just seize up. That hasn't happened. And I think there's a whole series of other problems that haven't happened. Uh, we're continuing to improve our uh, trading relationship with countries around the world, our military collaboration with countries around the world. And I think that's actually a positive thing. But the, one of the most interesting things at the moment is Michel Barnier, the chief negotiator for the European Union. He's um, casting a lot of scepticism over France's close embedded relationship within the European Union. He's actually challenging that himself. Perhaps he's been influenced by the Brexiteers. Perhaps he's just looking after French national interest. So why did you back the Leave campaign in 2016? What was the thing that really made you a Eurosceptic? Um, two things. Um, the European Union has a huge amount of power and influence, and it's kind of a big government approach to things. And I, I, that's always a concern. But more important than that, I think my constituents should have the power to hire and fire the political decision makers. 
they know who I am. They can fire me. Hopefully they'll keep me on at the next election. Uh, but I want them to have that power. Even the most uh, passionate European fans of the European Union in my constituency running up to Brexit, when I asked, how many MEPs do you have in the northwest of England? Very few knew. When I asked, can you name a single one? Very few could. When I mentioned the name that Nick Griffin, for a time, uh, was a member of the European Parliament, representing the northwest of England, they recognised the name, didn't like it very much, but didn't realise that he was the democratically elected representative representing the entire northwest of England in the European Union. So if the most passionate fans of the European Union don't know who their MEPs are, how do you have accountability? And I think if you don't have accountability, you don't really have democracy. You resigned from Theresa May's government over opposition to her Brexit plans. What was it specifically about her position that was the tipping point for you to tender your resignation? Well, I think there's in any deal, any relationship, as you're uh, taking it apart and you're going to have problems. And so there being problems and challenges and uh, corners to uh, smooth out wasn't the reason why. The key and well, the fundamental reason was um, the, uh, the Northern Ireland relationship, the Northern Ireland backstop, because that was a position if we ended up in that we would have to ask the European Union for permission. We couldn't unilaterally leave the backstop. We would have to get approval from the European Union to leave the Northern Ireland backstop. That would actually put us in a more restrictive position then than if we were full and proper members of the European Union. In that circumstance, I would, uh, I, I think that's incredibly difficult to uh, break the impasse. So that uh, was the fundamental reason the first time, the second time I voted against uh, Theresa May's deal. And then the third time, because she had stepped down, allow a new leader to come forward. That's why in the third instance, I said, I'll vote for it, because you can have a fresh thinking, fresh uh, approach to resolving the Northern Ireland backstop and certain other problems. But Boris Johnson's Brexit deals have caused a number of issues currently around the Irish border. Are you concerned currently about the fact that there is a trade border down the Irish Sea splitting Northern Ireland from Great Britain? And as well as that, there are now greater levels of tension between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And there have been some violent clashes in recent months. Are you concerned that those tensions, divisions and escalations could see a return to violence on the island of Ireland? Well, I wouldn't go so far as to say a return to violence on the island of Ireland, but... I'm very concerned about the situation there. I'm more broadly very concerned about the political situation across the island of Ireland where Sinn Féin, um, I would say a pretty notorious history. Uh, Sinn Féin is a dominant party in the Republic, uh, just as it's increasingly significant in the uh, North of Ireland. And that shows, I think, uh, well, that leads to very significant concerns. Now, obviously Sinn Féin are a, have moved on, shall we say, uh, from how they were during the Troubles. But those tensions are clearly there. And for certain communities in Northern Ireland, the relationship with Great Britain is profoundly important and a good, positive thing. But we have to look at why these tensions are there. Yes, you have a, a deal that needs refinement, that needs improvement. But you also have to look at the interpretation. When you have complicated deals, it leaves a scope for interpretation. And the reputation of the European Union over many, many years 
has been that it interprets the rules and many countries in Europe interprets the rules very different to the United Kingdom. So the question of uh, access for goods uh, and transport in and out of Northern Ireland is down to interpretation. And the European Union can interpret those rules very differently, but is choosing not to. So the question isn't fundamentally over the deal itself, isn't over uh, Britain looking to the European Union, it's actually how the European Union are choosing to treat Northern Ireland and treat the United Kingdom as a whole. And I think Martin Selmayer, one of the senior advisors during the Brexit negotiations, did suggest the idea that for the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, Northern Ireland would be the sacrifice we would have to make. I think that's pretty toxic politics. Well, let's move away from Brexit at the moment. And I want to ask you about the lockdown restrictions that we've had over the last 18 months. And you've been a very vocal lockdown sceptic, I think it's fair to say recently. But why, why is it that you are just so opposed to these measures? Well, um, you have to look at the, the first uh, question. When I resigned about a year ago, uh, one of the questions I put to the Prime Minister was, during a few-month period, there were 20,000 fewer GP to hospital referrals in the Bolton borough. You extrapolate that uh, nationwide and you take it through the whole course of the pandemic. Millions of people have not had that GP to hospital referral. Now, I don't know what that translates to in terms of people who could have had an early stage cancer identified, treated um, in a mild treatment and a full recovery. I don't know how many have gone from that stage to late stage cancer with a pretty grim, nasty treatment program, or they get caught and they're told you have terminal cancer, you're gonna die of cancer. So I didn't know how that balanced out at that stage. And then you got questions over children's education, you got questions over uh, the economy, you got questions over civil liberties. And we're looking now at compulsory vaccination. And we're also looking at domestic ID cards, which are being led in Scotland at the moment. So I raised a number of questions a year ago. And you look at the situation uh, that we're facing now, and it's those questions are just as objectively reasonable now. But the government has never set out its idea of this is a threat from COVID. This is the challenges, the problems due to the lockdown. So my question in my letter was, is the cure worse than the disease? The government in that year has not set out how it believes the cure is better than the disease it's tackling. It hasn't set that out. And I think as an objective member of parliament, looking after the interests of my constituents, I have a right to demand that the government sets out, these are the costs on one hand, whether it's cancer, heart disease, cataract operations, hip replacements, all of those other medical treatments, versus the medical um, um, treatment and protection from COVID. It ought to do that because it's not like, uh, so at the beginning, I voted for the Coronavirus Act, I voted for the first lockdown. And for all of those months, the government had an opportunity to gather its thoughts, understand the situation, understand the impact of the first lockdown, understand the threat, the genuine threat from COVID, and then in the second lockdown period say, we ought to take things in a very different way. They didn't. This is fundamentally why I opposed it. And when government takes so many powers from the people, they've got to have very strong evidence. You might take the precautionary principle at the beginning, 
but later on, you've got to demonstrate that evidence and they have never chosen to do so. And is there ever an occasion where public health should supersede or override basic freedoms and civil liberties? Well, I voted for the uh, first lockdown. I voted for the Coronavirus Act initially. We have the Civil Contingencies uh, uh, Act, which was from 1984. Not a great year to be uh, having such an act, but you have the ability uh, historically that if there's an emergency, you can take as a government emergency powers. But the difference between the Coronavirus Act and these civil uh, emergencies or civil contingencies from 1984 is that requires a two-weekly renewal uh, by a vote in Parliament. So there's a debate and a vote every two weeks under that process. And you make a comparison perhaps between Brexit and coronavirus. You remember the debates we had in Parliament over Brexit. I think coronavirus and everything around that dwarves Brexit, but I don't notice as a member of Parliament, and I'm sure society doesn't really see that there's a sufficient or a robust debate in Parliament over these extraordinary powers the government's taking. You mentioned before the idea that the government is seeking to introduce these domestic vaccine passports and the mandatory vaccination for certain venues. And we're seeing at the moment countries like Portugal, Denmark, Sweden and Norway actually abandoning their vaccine passport proposals because there isn't enough scientific evidence to prove their value. So if if that is the case in neighbouring countries, then why is the UK planning to introduce them? Does the government know something that we don't? Uh, The government doesn't know anything uh, that we don't on coronavirus, its transmissibility, the risk to health, because now much of that data is out there. We can make our own judgments and Uh, the coronavirus now is increasingly, because you look at the vaccine and you look at the other treatments hospitals know that they can give to people, uh, which was, um, there's a lot of learning very early on. And now coronavirus is around the same level of threat to life as influenza is. It's kind of in that territory now. Um, So objectively, unless the government can come out with very clear information, which they haven't yet, of why we need to be... uh, making more extreme, uh, making a more extreme position in terms of civil liberties, uh, then we should, like those other countries, bring it all to an end. And you, you just look, um, if you look at the, the first and then the second wave, you saw a very clear link between transmission, hospitalization and death. You look at the third wave, according to the government statistics, that link is clearly fundamentally broken in comparison to how it was before. So why? when no variant of concern has meaningfully challenged any one of our range of vaccines, are we looking at compulsory vaccination and ID cards? Um, And you also look, and this would be uh, an interesting question for viewers to think, why do you need compulsory vaccination in a care home setting, which comes into force in a few weeks time, but you do not need compulsory vaccination in the National Health Service? That's the decision of the government, but it's weird that very significant inconsistency between the two. So based on that, can the government rightly claim to be following the science around coronavirus and the mandatory vaccination vaccine passports when there was a report published recently by the House of Commons Public Accounts and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee that actually stated that there isn't enough evidence to justify their introduction? Politicians can interpret uh, scientific or medical advice uh, very widely. So following the science, science doesn't say you must take this action or this action. The science says 
this is the risk, this is the threat, and it might be a very broad range of risk and threats. And politicians have to make a political decision. Every decision that has been made is a political decision because it's been made by politicians. We're not run by scientists and medics. And therefore we can't argue with following the science because we've taken a very different route to Sweden and to other countries. So does that mean Sweden, if they go down a different route to us, is not following the science? Should we have a, an approach similar to Australia because they've got great scientists and medical officers? Well, no, it's all politics. It's all political decisions uh, to mitigate risk, to reduce the risk. But how many powers, how interventionist should a government be to reduce those risks and protect citizens? I'd quite like the Swedish approach, which is to respect the people to give information for you to understand your own health, your own health concerns, and for you fundamentally to be empowered to say, I will take a risk or I'm very concerned and I'll protect myself. I'll shield at home, I'll wear a mask, I'll be washing my hands so very many times every single day. You're empowered. If the government sees that that's not working and it's causing major problems for society, you might wanna step it up a bit, but we haven't been through that. Uh, cycle in the UK. And Sweden does look to be in quite a good position at the moment. A, a large number of Conservative MPs, you included, have formed this new COVID recovery group. What, what does this organisation hope to achieve? Communication and information are the, uh, the key aspects to it. COVID recovery group has a very broad range of uh, interest, people who have supported the government on every vote so far, other people, including me, who have opposed the government uh, in many of the more recent decisions that they have. But fundamentally, it's about information. Um, people need to organise and share ideas and, and concerns. And one of the problems in, uh, over until recently is Parliament has not been functioning. Parliament's either been closed down and we're communicating remotely, or only a very small number of people, uh, MPs, have been attending Parliament. Well, if I've got concerns in my constituency and I'm in Parliament, I can have a chat. It's easier to have a conversation with people to share concerns and ideas. But if we're all separated, it's far less easy to communicate. You also look perhaps at um, how respectable grassroots organisations are now increasingly emerging. These aren't led from the top. These aren't led by uh, recognised and old Institutes, these are organizations such as Catch Up With Cancer or them, that's us for them. Uh, so whether it's obviously Catch Up With Cancer or parents being very deeply concerned about the impact of the lockdowns, not the coronavirus so much because coronavirus has very little impact on children, uh, but the impact on education. These grassroots movements are saying, this is the impact on society. This is the impact on our health and our children's education. Do we have the balance right? And those voices have not been heard for so much of the uh, lockdown and pandemic period. And it's right and good now that those voices are being heard and it, uh, the COVID recovery group and others listening to those voices and taking on those arguments. And have you been surprised by the lack of opposition and challenge from the Labour benches to the coronavirus restrictions and by the fact that the majority of the scrutiny is actually coming from within the Conservative Party in this COVID recovery group. I'm not surprised at all. I'm very disappointed. I think it's uh, uh, shockingly bad that Labour have provided so little, not necessarily even opposition, 
but so little challenge in terms of the approach of the government. But fundamentally, the Labour Party is a more authoritarian party by instinct than the Conservatives. So their instincts are more in line with taking um, this interventionist approach. So it is their nature to do that. But it is quite interesting now, the Liberal Democrats are, um, I in the past occasionally put a bit of skepticism over their liberal instincts, but at least they now are uh, challenging the government on uh, some of these in, uh, uh, questions. Now, with the ID card side of things, I, I think Labour are very enthusiastic, uh, but the Labour Party did vote against compulsory vaccinations uh, for the workers. I know the trades union movement is very concerned about that. And perhaps the reason why the government hasn't imposed um, the same restrictions, which we'll see, we're expecting 40,000 carers to be ejected from the care system in only a few weeks' time, is the reason why the government hasn't done the same medical intervention in the NHS, is about 88% of uh, people in the NHS have had the vaccines, that means they can carry on working. So on that 1 million strong workforce, if about 10% are rejected, that's 100,000 NHS workers who would have to leave. Perhaps this is why the government is not imposing it there, partly because Labour and the trade unions would oppose, but they can see the impact it would have. And therefore, it's not a health consideration, it's a workforce and human resources consideration. Do you expect to be given a vote in the House of Commons over the government's COVID-19 plan B for winter, which would see the rollout of the vaccine passports and mandatory vaccinations? The government is minded to give us a vote, but the government is not committing to giving us a vote. It is refusing to commit to giving members of parliament a vote if we have to uh, uh, go into plan B. I think that's extraordinary. Uh, the coronavirus is far better understood. Uh, there is far better monitoring. So if there were some extraordinary variant of concern which defeats all of the existing uh, vaccination uh, all the existing vaccines, if that were to come along, I think we would detect it reasonably early on because we're in a far better position now with far, far better science. But the government is refusing to commit for democratically elected politicians to challenge the government. And this is very concerning. So to finish, I'd like to bring our discussion back to Brexit and ask you, what do you see as being the long-term benefits of leaving the European Union, especially now that the COVID-19 pandemic is beginning to draw to a close? The most important thing is fundamentally democracy. People know who to hold to account. Politicians, whether Conservative or Labour or anyone else, can't say, uh, for broadly speaking, the European Union, it's their fault, blame them. We have to be held to account for our decisions or, um, or lack of decisions in, in certain areas. So I think democracy is the most important victory in this. But the other aspect is, uh, and we were talking about localism before, the closer decisions are made uh, to the appropriate level, the better the decision is. And I think we'll have a more responsive de decision-making process outside the European Union. So when technology and society changes, as it is, increasingly uh, rapid technological advances, and we've got a changing world with globalization, Britain is gonna be a more responsive, adaptable country to face those challenges in the way that 27 nation states within the European Union context will find it very difficult to evolve and adapt. Chris Green, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.